As Pope Francis once tweeted, The earth, our home, is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth. Strong words, Papa. But he's right. Climate change is wreaking havoc on the planet. Report after report from the UN shows the terrifying impacts that await us on a warming earth. Rising seas, hotter heat waves, stronger storms. New York City is vulnerable to all of that. Water is splashing over the seawalls at the tip of lower Manhattan. Widespread flooding is the biggest concern in the nation's largest city as Hurricane Sandy approaches. Forecasters say the storm surge could reach 11 feet. Well, the extreme temperatures force the city to issue a heat emergency today, and Con Edison is pleading with customers to conserve energy as the power grid is getting maxed out. The first time in recorded history, the National Weather Service issuing a flash flood emergency for all five boroughs of New York City. More than seven inches of rain in just a few hours. But New York, at least, has a plan to finally get off fossil fuels within the next 20 years. Doing that will mean changing a lot about how we live, from what our buildings look like to how we get around, where our electricity comes from. A lot of it is going to come from offshore wind, something we don't currently have. So Max, are we actually going to do this? The state that can't fund reliable rush hour train service, and we're going to remake the state's entire economy and its power grid in 20 years? Yeah, I'm skeptical as well. But there's reason for hope. Uh, Interesting things are happening, and the future is kind of up for grabs. We'll find out if the boot on our necks, the price gouging and unaffordability of so much in the city remains there after we get off of fossil fuels, or if there's a possible more equitable future ahead of us. Hello, and welcome to the Hellgate Podcast. I'm Chris Robbins, a reporter here at Hellgate, a worker-owned local news website committed to covering New York City. This week, not because it's Earth Day, because the climate is always important, but also because it's Earth Day, where fossil fuel companies get to tell you how much they care for the environment, we are going to be talking climate and the transformation ahead for New York. That will have profound impacts on everyone living here. You just might not know it yet. But first, something from our sponsors. That's right, we have sponsors. It's spring. The flowers are out. The air is sweet. And it's time to take your bike out of storage and give it a spin. But when you do, does your bike chain sound like this? Or does your bell not have much ring to it anymore? And are your tires as flat as a tortilla? Then bring your bike into the good folks at Bike Plant on Tompkins Avenue in Brooklyn. That's right, 175 Tompkins Avenue in Bedsty, between Hart and Pulaski. They'll get your bike sounding like this. And tell them Hellgate sent you and get a 10% discount on parts and accessories and some free Hellgate stickers. What a deal! Bike Plan also wants to remind you about a ride on Saturday, April 22nd, being put on by Good Company Bike Club and Transportation Alternatives to support a protected bike lane on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn. The ride starts at the intersection of Albany Avenue and Foster Avenue at 11 a.m. and goes down Bedford Avenue. Ride safe and have fun from our friends at Bike Plant. I'm here with fellow Hellgate writer and co-owner Max Rivlin-Nadler who wrote two stories this week for Hellgate about climate. They're both about decarbonization. The first story is about how we're going to decarbonize our power grid. 
The second story is about how that decarbonization is going to play out on a building by building level. Max, where do you want to start? The grid seems like a good place to start. It's where the electricity flows from. All right. So where did you go for this story? All right. So one thing I passed or saw pretty much every day growing up here were the red and white smokestacks on the Queens waterfront. They're right next to the Queensboro Bridge, across from Roosevelt Island, and in front of the Queensbridge projects. Those four towers, they're the Ravenswood Generating Station. On any given day, they supply around 20% of the city's power. I went there on a recent spring day. As turbines spin, workers in construction hats gathered around fenced-off portions of the airport hangar-sized space. Uh, Flags of New York City and the Great Borough of Queens hang high above. I met Jim McNemony, who manages the power plant for Rise Light and Power, which now owns the generating station. Hold on. This is like you're on Sesame Street. You're meeting the guy who makes the power. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the whole point of starting your own publication. I want to meet the guy who runs the big factory. Um, Anyways, Chris, let me live my dream. Jim told me exactly what they do at the factory, which, in short, is burning gas to make power. We basically convert energy. That's what we do in this place. We're buying natural gas that has chemical energy locked in it. We start to burn it. That releases the chemical energy in the form of heat and light. We capture the heat. That heat turns water into high-pressure steam. We use the energy that's in the high-pressure steam to spin a turbine. Now we've got mechanical energy do something with it. Right. That is connected to a generator. Uh-huh. Generator is nothing more than a big magnet inside copper coils. As we spin the magnet, we generate a voltage. We take that and we send it out to the people in New York City. Each day, Jim gets on a phone call and he talks with regulators about how much electricity the plant needs to generate. So the phone call that I just stepped away for is, is part of that. Every day, Every day we're looking at what's happening in the next couple of days. We're looking at the weather. And all the plants have a little bit of insight into what's happening in the system as a whole, right? If somebody else is, is, is going into a maintenance outage, then we might be asked to run, right? So there's a lot of coordination. That's pretty cool, but they're burning gas. So we don't want to keep this power plant running forever, right? No, the plan really here is to, like, shut the place down once and for all. This whole process isn't, isn't what people are against. Yeah. <laughs> the, whole, the whole fossil fuel thing. That, that so they want to keep the transmission lines already there. But what they want to send out instead is offshore wind energy. And once that wind energy gets flowing, some of it, they hope, and this is a little far down the line, will be stored in huge batteries on site for use during times when the wind just isn't blowing. So wind turbines, that'll be offshore. Right. It's just replacing the steam part with a large wind. Right. And now you're spinning. You have to spin You have to spin a magnet inside a copper coil. Okay, but my Con Ed bill has gone up more and more each month. It seems like not a great time profit-wise to get out of the fossil fuel burning game. Why are they converting? What's in it for them? Yeah, well, they don't really have a choice. So by 2030, New York State has committed to getting 70% of its electricity from renewable energy sources. And by 2040, it's mandated to get all of its power from renewable sources. That's because of a big piece of legislation signed in 2019. 
lawmakers have agreed to pass one of the most ambitious climate change bills in the country. The Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, it includes the implementation of 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040 and net zero emissions by 2050. All right, so New York is supposed to be 100% renewable energy by 2040. Where are we at right now? So a lot of numbers, but right now New York gets just around 30% of its energy from renewable resources. And honestly, almost all of that is hydropower. That comes from hydroelectric projects, huge dams built during the Robert Moses era, uh, which power the lives of everybody who lives upstate. So that's around like 6 million people. However, a lot of that renewable power is just going to upstate New York. If you're living in, you know, Lake Placid or Malone or Plattsburgh or any bucolic place like that, you're living in the Green Revolution because for the most part, your energy is already completely renewable. That being said, that's just upstate New York. And I'm guessing that downstate is dirty. Oh, yeah, not not good at all. Uh, so since the, some say, extremely premature closure of the Indian Point nuclear power plant in 2021, the city has actually increased the amount of fossil fuels that it's burning uh, to keep itself powered. So we're actually going in the wrong direction. Okay, and, and this is where our great friends up north, the Quebecois, get involved? We. Oui. So, right, New York shares a really important border, one with Canada and the province of Quebec. Under an agreement reached last year, the state-owned Hydro-Quebec, cool name, will in 2026 begin actually shipping more of its electricity from these existing massive dams north of the border down a transmission line that will run underneath the Hudson to Astoria. So that line alone will actually fulfill 20% of New York's summer power needs when energy use is the highest and, you know, everyone's got their air conditioners running, we're all watching movies, etc., um, there's also another new transmission line being built uh, that's also currently under construction, and that's going to bring power from western New York and upstate. And that is like just specifically renewable. So solar, uh, wind, these had all been in the works for a while, but the government got really, really serious about doing them when like, holy shit, they looked at the calendar. 2030 is very, very soon. It is like in less than seven years and we're actually going the wrong way. I'm okay with this plan so long as along with the power that Quebec is sending New York, it does not send us any more overpriced Montreal bagels. But how much will this power pipeline help towards the 2030 goal? Like, are, does it get us there? Right. So like what's on the back of an envelope and like what's being contracted out is different from what's already like built. So right now for this contracts that the state has given out, they say like, oh, you know what? This adds up to a 39% increase in renewable energy by 2030. But, and we know this well in New York State, contracted out and paying people to construct things does not actually equal actually built. Just like I'm still waiting for the Second Avenue subway and um, really enjoying my 10 years late East Side access. So, you know, as Colin Kenneberg wrote in New York Focus last year, this is a really good point that he made. New York will need to build wind, solar, and energy storage 10 times faster for the rest of this decade, the 2020s, than it did in the last. So it'd have to be like a complete shift in how we do business. That being said, you know, New York's leaders, like I was saying before, they've shown some interest in actually like getting this done. 
And late last year, they finalized a climate plan to completely decarbonize the state's economy, something that had been under consideration for several years. Sick. Okay, so New York politicians created this amazing plan to decarbonize the state, but didn't allocate any money towards it. This is going to be part of the budget negotiations, right? Yeah, so they need to find the money. Um, And either that's through direct investment, like a lot of other governments do, or by our old friend cap and trade, or it's been rebranded cap and invest uh, because everyone is still bummed out from the Obama years. And essentially what that does is taxing the state's biggest polluters to fund our decarbonization projects. What about the wind power we were talking about earlier? I keep reading that Germany is basically all wind turbines now. When when is that going to happen here? Right. So this is the even bigger lift. By 2030, downstate New York is betting on receiving 24% of its energy from offshore wind farms. And by 2040, downstate New York is planning on receiving almost half of its power from offshore wind farms. Right now, currently in New York City, we are receiving zero power from offshore wind farms because none of them are operational yet. But Jim, my friend Jim, the engineer at the power plant, he's hopeful. It's not new stuff. It's the whole Northern Ireland, Northern Scotland, right up in the North Sea. It's all you've got. You've got plenty of windmills that are in in in, in operation around you know the world. That mm. we can take that, those lessons learned and bring that to New York. So the first of these projects will be South Fork Wind, which will apparently come online this year, and it's just going to power a bunch of. Shishi Homes in East Hampton. New York's first offshore wind farm and its first power cable has made landfall. Snaking 60 miles by year's end, it will connect 12 wind turbines being built 35 miles east of Montauk, ushering in clean energy to 70,000 homes. It's the biggest dive into offshore wind in the nation. But it's really a test case because after that, things will get going. Basically, a lot of environmentalists and a lot of uh, people looking to make money are calling on the state to be as aggressive as possible here because ultimately they feel as if wind only has a massive upside. Ah, the profit motive. We started talking about that at the top of this podcast. All right, I'm not going to say I'm like an expert here or anything. And a hat tip here to CUNY law professor Rebecca Bradsby's who walked me through it. Talked about how basically the Industrial Revolution actually had a net negative effect on health for a lot of people. Worse air quality, horrible coal mining conditions, while also creating a ton of wealth for industrialists. And each time there's organizing, right, like unionizing uh, against this quote unquote progress, industrialists held it up as being, you know, somehow against modernity. And this happens literally each time we go through an energy revolution. You see, you know, obviously an amassing of wealth, uh, but it's not evenly distributed. And the worst impacts are visited on the poorest. Just a 15 minute drive from 30 Rock sits New York City's largest power plant, Ravenswood Generation Station. The plant has burned fossil fuel for years and years, a practice that has impacted the community so much that many call that neighborhood Asthma Alley. Coal in turn gave way to oil. I mean, there's still literally a derelict coal belt outside of the Ravenswood generating plant. So this didn't happen all that long ago. Um, and now oil is giving away mostly to gas. And now gas, as the city says, is going to have to make way for wind and hydro and solar. So like what could be the bad impact here? It's literally the power of the sun and wind and water. 
that sounds really nice, but aren't these happy fun sun companies going to be looking for oil sized profits? Yeah. So like, of course they are. They're taking a ton of investment to try to make money off of this. You have like multinational power companies like, and I'm going to butcher their name. I, they're Danish. I don't know how it's pronounced. Orsted. Uh, Damn, that which was, is, hey, bravo. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying my best here. You know, that's owned by the Danish government. Um, they're poised to make millions on powering New York's energy transition through wind power. But none of this would be possible without like huge state subsidies. So both in financing, they're giving out loans and like also land use. So currently the plan right now is to rely on private utilities like Con Ed and, you know, smaller companies like Rise Light and Power to build out the state's renewable energy grid. And, you know, people are going to make millions and millions of dollars, uh, but they're also the same companies that for decades had contributed to air pollution by burning fossil fuels. You're telling me <laughs> that New York is going to pay the Danish government to build our wind turbines? Isn't there an irony in that? Why can't New York's government just build the wind turbines and operate the wind turbines? Yeah, glad you asked. So like right now in Albany, uh, progressives and climate justice advocates are once again pushing with much more success this time, it appears, the Build Public Renewables Act. And what that would do is give the public way more say in the running of the state's public power authority and give the authority the mandate to basically, if they see a project that needs to be done or a renewable opportunity, build it themselves. Okay, bottom line, will we actually hit 70% renewable energy by 2030 and then 100% by 2040? Like, is that even possible? Maybe, um, but it's going to be really hard. Uh, we're in better shape than we were. And obviously the next few years, even months, are going to be really, really crucial. That's exciting, you know, because we're saving the planet. Hi, you're listening to the Hellgate Podcast, produced by Hellgate, New York City's only worker-owned local news website. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. That's saying the word podcast a lot. Okay, back to the show. Wind, solar, hydro, maybe some geothermal mixed in. It seems like eventually we're actually going to have a clean power grid. But what about plugging that grid into the actual city, specifically its buildings? If you've ever seen your apartment building's boiler room and the many miles of duct tape around it, you know what I'm talking about. Doesn't matter if we have clean electricity if our city can't really use it. That's what your other story looked at, right, Max? Yeah. So this is really important because New York's buildings are its number one emitter of greenhouse gases. Almost 70% of the city's emissions come from buildings. And that's, you know, both residential, where you live, your apartment building, and office where you used to work. And that's because a lot of them still generate their own electricity on site. Uh, your boiler, which you're using for heat and hot water, it's like a little power plant in your home that burns gases. So in 2019, the city took its own steps to cut down on its use of greenhouse gases. This was called the Climate Mobilization Act, which is also known as Local Law 97. For the first time on the earth, the first major city on the earth to mandate that our buildings must stop emitting so many 
dangerous pollutants that our buildings must be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Local Law 97 ultimately aims to get NYC to carbon neutrality by 2050. One of the really important parts of it phases down the amount of carbon that buildings can emit. Those buildings begin to get fined starting in 2024 if they don't hit certain cutoffs. Excuse me, sir. 2024 is literally next year. Not even. It's in like eight months. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's really nuts. But good news. The majority of buildings are compliant for this 2024 cutoff. If you see any buildings with an F grade sign, uh, they're in trouble. Uh, the next cutoff is 2030. And that's when the emissions get stricter. That's when things are going to get really real. Because right now, 76% of buildings in New York City are not in compliance. Yeah, one of my favorite games to play is to walk past like a brand new gleaming glass condo building and look and see their like D grade. And it's like, dude, you just built this and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, because they, they use natural gas. They're like, oh, what is the cheapest thing to do? Like the Vanderbilt Tower, which the Durst organization owns, they just built it and they're the ones trying to basically like have a huge loophole in local law 97. They're like lobbying the Adams administration because they built this new building that totally stinks from a climate perspective. All right. So what will these shitty condo buildings need to do to make sure that they're meeting these benchmarks for efficiency? So it is actually going to take a lot of work ultimately, but some of it right now is like easier. That includes things like replacing your shitty windows to make them more energy efficient fixing your leaky roof, or even changing the bulbs of the whole building. Like, I know that seems like an environmentalist, like, you know, small bore thing, but that is like low-hanging fruit that you can do. Ultimately, however, these buildings are going to have to get rid of their gas boilers and replace them with heat pumps or something that could heat a home and heat hot water using electricity. And that's going to be like really expensive. So this week I went to an event in Harlem where HDFC co-op owners, that's income-restricted housing, talked about what a lift it was to get their buildings to get off of gas and just how much money up front it actually cost. Up on top of this building I went to in Harlem, there was a massive solar array that's now helping to power the building. And that building is, is good for 2030. Um, there's no moving pieces and all solar PV systems that you see are, are um, installed to withstand up to 120 mile per hour winds, right? So, you know, people forget, New York City, we're a coastal city, right? You know, blizzards can happen here, hurricanes, whatever it may be. So uh, all of the racking and PV system equipment chosen here is meant to withstand heavy rain and wind and so on. And okay, so 2024 is coming fast. Lots of buildings aren't in good shape for 2030. I'm reaching for my pitchfork. How do I how do I stop this, Max? <laughs> I don't want my I don't want my power bill to go up. Fuck this. Yeah, right. Like especially, you know, residential buildings have a big lift and especially office buildings. And that's where you find like a lot of resistance being built here. So a lot of these new office buildings, maybe they were expecting to be making a lot more money on rent before, you know, people stopped going to the office. They're leaning heavily on the Adams administration to just like go ahead and gut local law 97 having his administration implement the rules in a way that they could buy their way out of compliance. And, and currently, the way it's structured, they could just pay the fine or they could buy an energy credit, and it would ultimately be cheaper than getting off of gas heating. 
On top of that, they've kind of like found an ally in building owners and co-op owners who don't really want to have to pay for these huge building upgrades. To be fair, a lot of them like really can't afford it right now. It's it's a huge burden, even with a few of the tax credits and rebates. They're going to have to front a lot of money. So commercial building owners and their lobbying group, Rebney, our friends, have been working with some of the co-ops to try to overturn or water down the law. And that's not sitting right with people like Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso. This is him outside of a co-op in Flatbush in March, asking for more help from the city. The larger companies believe that they can be exempt of having to do the greater good, to be a part of the greater good, because they have money. And what we're saying is no. We're telling the mayor, we're telling this administration, and anyone that is going after watering down local law 97, that it is unacceptable. And like right now, as we're speaking, co-ops across the city are getting solicitations, asking them to call Eric Adams to gut the law. All right, so the Adams administration, hmm, whose <laughs> DOB commissioner resigned in disgrace last year, are they going to water the law down? What's what's happening? What I've heard from people trying to navigate this is that a lot of people aren't picking up the phone at the Department of Buildings. That's because a lot of city agencies right now are understaffed. But, you know, there's some seriousness there about actually doing something about it. Um, the Adams administration has partnered with companies like Block Power, which is helping to train thousands of people how to do these conversions once, you know, the funding gets lined up. On Thursday, he announced a bunch of new things, including a pilot program to fund solar installations in low-income housing. But right now, it's kind of becoming clear that, like, there's going to be a funding gap. The federal government did a lot with the Inflation Reduction Act to make heat pumps cheaper and get people off of gas and oil heating. But that's probably it from the federal government forever. Uh, I don't know. So it's going to be up to the city and state to make all of this make sense. And that's where things like public renewables come in. Can the state further subsidize the use of clean electricity? Like, how do we make all of this cheaper? How can we offer as many carrots as possible? Because at the end of the day, it's pretty unimportant if the state has to go in and just do this itself, considering like the absolute massive stakes of continuing to burn greenhouse gases. Yeah, we're going to look back and marvel at how nuts it was that we were literally burning oil and gas inside these rickety hundred-year-old buildings. Yeah, and sometimes they explode. But New York City is kind of walking a path that not many places have walked before, at least in North America. And if New York City can do it, if we could actually like convert these buildings and get off gas and oil, power the city, um, then anywhere else can too, and probably will, because New York is a, is a leader. Not to get too heady, but again, we, we can save the planet. Like in the film Biodome. Like in Biodome. Well, I was going to ask you to define what a heat pump is, and I was also going to ask you uh, about the microplastics in my blood, but those questions are going to have to wait. Max, thank you so much for, for your reporting and for walking us through how to save the planet. My pleasure, and I hope I hope this gave you a sense of energy yourself and uh, a willingness to make the changes that we have to and be angry at the right people. This has been the Hellgate Podcast. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. 
subscribe to Hellgate at hellgatenyc.com forward slash products. Our editorial team is Adla Jackson, Nick Pinto, Max Rivlin-Nadler, Esther Wong, Katie Way, and me, Christopher Robbins. Nadia Tykolsker is our business manager. Lauren Despoli is our producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find the music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutch Phrase Studio. During the week, check out hellgatenyc.com for daily reportage, in-depth investigations, and more stories about New York City. If you like this podcast, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time.